Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. And I'm very happy to be with you this week, Ashley. Uh, thank you for moving our recording time to accommodate me uh, being being out. I was a little, feeling a little under the weather this week, so uh, I appreciate you moving the recording time to later in the week. Not a problem. It's a little earlier than usual, so we, we're drink, or we're speaking over coffee. <laughs> yes, yes. Th- that is the only drink in our cups right now. Um, so because I was out sick, we, we don't have a full show for you. We, we don't have uh, any signs of the times or, or, or face sharing at the end. But that does not mean that we don't have an exciting show because we are talking about sex this week. Yes, we are talking about sex with Christine Emba. Christine is a columnist for The Washington Post, one of my favorite columnists there, and the author of the new book, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. Yes, it is quite a provocation indeed. So really exciting conversation talking about, you know, what does it mean? We all agree now, especially after the Me Too movement, that like, Consent is a baseline for all sexual encounter that's that's agreed across the board. But what Christine is asking is, is that the only thing that we need to agree upon in order to have good or ethical sex? And she gets into a lot of lot of interesting questions and, and debates in, in modern culture. Yes. And it's a very frank conversation. I would say maybe a PG-13 one. So if you're listening to this with kids in the car, um, maybe put on the earmuffs. Yeah, I, I, that's probably a, a good idea. But so no signs of the times this week, but that doesn't mean it's been a slow news week in the Catholic press. So still a lot going on. Just to give you a little glance at what's happening at America this week, we've, we've got a ton of stories that you should check out. Yes, our colleague Mike O'Loughlin, our national correspondent, attended and participated in a really interesting meeting of bishops and theologians and journalists in Chicago that was semi-off the record. So he gives a report on that. And this week on the Gloria Purvis podcast, Gloria speaks with Abigail Favalli about what it means to be a woman from a Catholic perspective. Yeah, and over at Inside the Vatican, uh, they've got a roundtable uh, episode with indigenous leaders in Canada who are traveling to the Vatican to meet with Pope Francis. And in Rome, our colleague Gerard O'Connell is still covering the war in Ukraine. And this week, he has an exclusive interview with the former Ukrainian Jesuit superior. So no signs of the time this week, but uh, there's still a ton going on at americamagazine.org. Yes. So stay tuned and stick around for our conversation with Christine Emba about rethinking sex. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is Christine Emba. Christine is a columnist for The Washington Post and the author of the new book, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. Welcome back to Jesuitical, Christine. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. 
Great yeah. to have you. Yeah. Congratulations on the book. I have to say, I feel like I've read so many takes about like the hookup culture and some of them good, but they're they're written by people who are older and looking down. And with this book, I really felt like this is okay. This is someone who like has lived in the world that I live in and can speak about it with with real authenticity. And so uh, I really appreciate it. Love the book. Congratulations. Thank you. So it would be good to kind of get your story and maybe the uh, attitudes around sex that you were raised with, because you write about in the book that you were raised sort of in the evangelical church and eventually converted to Catholicism. And I'm wondering if you could just like describe sort of what you grew up with and then maybe how that changed when you became Catholic. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I think my changing background is also one of the reasons why I'm so interested in these questions and asking them from different perspectives. Both of my parents are Nigerian immigrants and both are very devout. And I was raised in a kind of non-denominational evangelicalism evangelicalism, almost Pentecostalism. And then I think this is probably true for a lot of people, but at a certain point, often when one goes to college, you have this question of, okay, I was raised a Christian. I'm not with my parents anymore. I don't have to go to church. Like, am I going to do this or am I not? And also at that time I was, you know, beginning to have questions about, you know, what exactly Christianity meant to me? What did these teachings mean? Where did they come from? And I found, in fact, that I didn't feel like I had very satisfying answers in the evangelical tradition. You know, Mm. sort of like, okay, well, don't have sex before marriage. Okay, why? Because Jesus. (laughs) Well, yeah, I I think when people um, hear evangelical, or at least I do, I think of like purity culture. Is that Mm -hmm. kind of the world you were in? Yeah. I mean, as I say in the book, I think I escaped sort of the worst of purity culture, like the youth pastors showing pieces of used tape to signify like girls who would kiss someone or something. But it was definitely an almost don't ask, don't tell is not quite the right metaphor, but a sort of we're not talking about sex except to say that you don't have it. But after marriage, your sex life is going to be amazing and the best thing ever. We're not going to tell you how to get there, but it will be if you follow the rules. So like definitely a little taboo to talk about. Yes, for sure. Um, And then in college, you know, I encountered just a lot of smart young Catholics and also the Catholic church through the sort of student ministry on campus. I went to Princeton University and I was attracted both by simply the, the beauty of the church, but also that there really did seem to be sort of a well-founded philosophical tradition and also tradition where these questions were discussed, but there was there was a, a framework around them to answer them. You know, there was the catechism. There was like a, a solid understanding of what many of these questions, not just sex, but other things about the faith actually meant. And so I converted to Catholicism my senior year of college, which I feel like is usually when people are not converting. It's like, yeah, it's the opposite. <laughs> or Well, I think it's long gone by the time most people are seniors, so... Right. Yeah. And I have been a, a Catholic ever since. So why write this book now? What Was there a specific trigger? Was there something in your own life or something in the world around you that you're like, all right, the world needs to be provoked on the question of sex? <laughs> <laughs> um, so at the Washington Post, I my beat is ideas in society, which is kind of everything, which can <laughs> be great, sometimes a little bit overwhelming. But In late 2017 and 2018, you know, the Me Too movement was happening, and I was writing a lot of columns about that. Um, 
And it seemed to show that, you know, some of the questions that we thought had sort of been solved by the sexual revolution and the feminist movement had not actually been settled. Like we still had Harvey Weinstein, you know, sort of assaulting underlings in hotel rooms and Matt Lauer with his weird assault button on his desk. That said, the Me Too movement also had women coming forward and, you know, society coming forward and saying, that's not okay. You need to get consent before you have sex with someone. So put a pin in that. Um, At the same time, there were these stories that were not quite so black and white, like real gray area stories. So I don't know if you're familiar with the New Yorker piece of short fiction, Cat Person. Yes. Very much so. But but I, (laughs) I don't imagine everyone listening is. So if you could briefly describe it. Sure. So Cat Person um, was a short story in The New Yorker about a college woman who goes on a date with an older guy, and she's not really that into him, but they have sex anyway, and then later encounter each other and he insults her. And that's the whole story, basically. It's just sort of a grim, close third person read of this sort of gross and maybe a little bit traumatic situation. But it was meaningful in the context of Me Too because so many women related to it. It became the most read piece of short fiction, I think, in the New Yorker magazine's history. And there were similar stories. That was fiction, but true to life, you know, the Aziz Ansari babe.net story where a woman says she went on a date with the feminist comedian Aziz Ansari, and he sort of pressured her into sexual activity, and she said it was the worst night of her life. And again, it seemed like there was there was something clearly off in all of these encounters and so many women related to them. And yet, you know, the answer was not more consent because especially in these situations, you know, maybe women had consented to activity, but there was something wrong and we didn't know how to talk about it. And I was just really interested in that phenomenon. And it also jived with what I was seeing in, you know, my experience and the experience of friends I talked to in the sort of modern dating world there was a kind of malaise in the sexual culture. People felt bad about things, but didn't really know why and didn't have a space to complain almost. Yeah, I think you're right. I think like, I mean, my general sense is that people are in agreement that like consent is the, is like definitely sort of like the, maybe a a foundational building block and the contemporary sexual ethic, but uh, it does seem like people are dissatisfied and are willing to explore, like, what are the other pieces that need yeah, to be? Because there's there's a place. long way between like criminal sex and and good, loving, fulfilling sex, and we don't really have good ways to talk about that area. I think is that so? Is that where you see your your book coming in? Yeah, for sure. I mean. When I started writing, it was almost an academic project, right? To figure out, you know, just what's going on here. Why is everybody so sad about this sexual world that's supposed to be really liberated and free and, you know, sort of solved? Um, And it eventually, you know, became more personal because, you know, it implicated my life, my friends' lives, our choices. But yeah, that was one of the first critiques that I that I came to: the idea that a consent only culture is not working um, for women and men today. You know, consent is a great floor, exactly as you say, but it's a terrible ceiling. And I think a lot of people, most people actually want more from, you know, their sexual encounters and relationships than not strictly a felony. You know, they want to be able to ask for more, but within the sort of 
understanding of everything is fine as long as it's consented to. There wasn't space to push back. Can you describe that that landscape, what the demographic of the people you're talking about is? Because obviously this varies by, you know, class and region and things like that. But just to describe what that landscape is like and maybe is, is there maybe an anecdote from the book that you think demonstrates what's missing and, and what's wrong? Sure. Yeah. So for this book, I, you know, I started it before COVID happened, but then also was still researching and interviewing during the COVID um, pandemic. But I talked to young women and men from, you know, say college age to mid 30s in a lot of major cities, but also some smaller ones across the United States and into Canada, actually. And yeah, I think my my work mostly centered on, I would say, heterosexual sort of cisgender people, because that's where my expertise lies. And also where I think that many of these problems uh, seem to run the deepest in those relationships. And so these are young people who, you know, are trying to date in the city or the suburbs. They're swiping on Tinder. They're using Bumble and Hinge. They don't feel great about it, frankly. It's sort of this understanding that everyone is free to do, you know, whatever they want, but also a sense of feeling a bit lost. And I think also that the sexual culture right now has been shaped by these assumptions that we have around sex, about what privacy looks like, about what freedom really means, about what we should or shouldn't owe to each other, about the ideal form of sex as being extremely chill and no strings attached, that we haven't really had the space to interrogate. But one of the things that I found while writing this book is that people want love, they want care, they want relationships and empathy. But in many cases, they feel bad asking for that. They feel that the culture says that they should want, you know, something else. And so they feel like they're the weird ones out for feeling uncomfortable in this situation. And even for, I think, going against certain current social and sexual norms that have been popularized by media, by pornography, by just the way that we talk about sex. Yeah. You mentioned two of, I guess, assumptions that shape uh, the current sexual landscape, privacy and freedom. And I thought your your chapter on privacy and dating apps was really, really interesting because I hadn't, you know, I've complained about dating apps at infinitum, but I hadn't really thought about them as this creating this world where your dating life is completely separate from your social life and the, what the side effects of that can be. So can you can you unpack that? Like, we seem to value maximal privacy, but maybe that's not the best thing for our sex lives. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a chapter, yes, about privacy. And it centers on, you know, some experiences with dating apps and Tinder, especially. And I speak to one woman who, you know, we're chatting about her dating life. And she talks about how she ordered a guy on Tinder. <laughs> um, that's the phrasing that she uses. And then a little bit later in our conversation, she's like, I don't know why I said that. Sounds kind of awful, actually. <laughs> like he was like a like a Grubhub like, yeah, meal. <laughs> exactly. Like a, a delivery of man <laughs> on Tinder. Um, but in that chapter, I talk about first how, you know, in the past, we used to form relationships in our communities. Like you might meet someone through your church, your family, your friends. And because you were both embedded in a network, you knew that there was some accountability a person who behaved really poorly on a date, they would know that, you know, news might get out because you know their friends. Hmm. But 
you know, when we are entirely separate, um, as in on Tinder, when you're just swiping through strangers, you know, as they say on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. You can kind of do whatever you want. Do you feel, um, sort of free to send pictures of your genitalia to ghost people? Because who's going to come after you? It's not like your friends know or your family knows. And that leads to, I think, a lot of bad behavior. And then, of course, there's just the phenomenon of dating apps, especially swipe apps, right? Where you're swiping through people. The apps themselves are designed to make dating look basically like a card game where you have infinite options and you just move from one to the next. And with this woman who is talking about ordering a man on Tinder, it really causes you to commodify people as well. You don't necessarily see people as, you know, one person embedded in a community with, you know, hopes and dreams or just another option who you can care for or not, uh, usually not, and move on to the next, which I think leads to a really unhealthy dating atmosphere. And like, why would you show up to a, like a social mixer or something, um, or a bar and with the intention of meeting someone, if you can like analyze like way, way more people like in the, with a device in the palm of your hand. Right. Because in, you know, you can probably get through more people more quickly and you can skip all of the small talk and all those things too. Right. Yeah. One of the, uh, this isn't, I don't think in the book, but I talked to a number of college students for this book and more than one of them told me of the phenomenon of, being on Tinder in college and sort of swiping as you were standing at a party. So you wouldn't be huh. talking to anyone. You would just sort of be swiping. And then if you match with someone, you could leave the party and like find them where they were, which seems to defeat the purpose of, of going anywhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that, that gets to one part of your book that I found extremely disheartening. Uh, like I, I don't like using dating apps like I always say you know I want to like meet someone in real life like at a bar at a party but you you talk to one man who who is afraid to do that now for fear of it being you know perceived as harassment so we're kind of in this like terrible bind where like women want that kind of (laughs) well at least some women want that kind of approach and men have been so spooked by the current moment that they aren't even willing to talk to women (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, I talk about, there's a chapter that's entitled, We're Liberated, But We're Miserable, where, you know, I suggest that the sort of lack of standards apart from consent should have freed us up to do whatever we want and, you know, talk to whoever we want. But instead, you know, with no standards, with no framework of what dating or sex is supposed to look like, people find themselves a little mystified and confused. You know, there's the question of, okay, if I talk to this person, will they read it as me asking them out on a date, which is what I think, or will they read it as something else? Who can say? We don't know what uh, the standards are as, you know, we might have in the past. And, you know, the, the specter of the Me Too movement has been great, I think, for for women in that, you know, men do think more about how will my actions be seen. But most men are not, in fact you know, rapists or assaulters. And some are so scared of being, you know, West Elm Caleb or Aziz Ansari that they simply won't do anything at all. And, you know, this leaves, I think, a lot of people just lonely, siloed. In a certain way, the two sexes seem unsure of even how to be with each other anymore, which I think is a sad consequence of a sexual culture that was supposed to free us up to be more together than ever.
wondering if we can shift this to connecting this to the conversation around like uh, maybe since this is a podcast for for Catholics around you know s- sort of the church's rules and I and ideas around sex because I, the church has like lots of a, a long tradition and and lots of you know hard lines around what good sex is and what illicit sex is and but it it does come from like a place that says you know sex is important it is meaningful it it does involve like the whole human person like like physical emotional spiritual it, it sounds like you're you're starting from a similar observation is that right yeah so one of the arguments that i critique in the book is this sort of cultural ideal that sex doesn't mean anything um that it should just be any other physical activity um, and the only thing that you have to worry about is whether you got consent to do it or not. Otherwise, it, it doesn't really mean that much. Um, and I would argue and said that sex is meaningful. In fact, there's a chapter that says sex is spiritual. Um, it does affect us both physically and, yes, emotionally. And if we want to be honest, uh, if we want to actually figure out how to make our sexual culture better, we have to be honest about that truth. That's so tough, though, because we we just like don't agree on like the meanings of any of those words anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's it's I'm not sure like if like if we are such like a spiritually remixed culture, or, mm-hmm. or, or is it because we're all like general on the same page about spirituality that we're more willing to say, okay, something's happening here. Do you think that? Which one is it? Do you think? Well, that's a great question. So you know, this book I was writing not just for a religious or Catholic audience. Um, Mm -hmm. I was really writing for kind of the broadest possible audience, including the secular audience. And one of the things that I found as I continued to do these interviews is that there is sort of a general sense among both religious and non-religious people that something is off. And, you know, that was an intuition that a lot of people had come to. And then if you actually talk to individuals about, you know, what sex means to them, what they want from relationships, what they want the culture to look like. There actually is a bit of consensus that, you know, I guess I, I'm told that sex shouldn't mean anything and I shouldn't be looking for a relationship, but actually I want love. I want to be cared for. And like, when I do have sex, actually it is meaningful for me. And there are, you know, even among people who are not religious, there was this a lot of commonalities, a lot of people saying the same thing, but also at the same time being like, but I don't know, maybe I'm the only person who feels that way. Hmm. And I was like, you're not. <laughs> like, it, it's okay. <laughs> and so that's actually how I came in part to one of my, you know, big provocations in the book, which is understanding that consent is a floor, not a ceiling. It's a fine baseline, but it's, it's not an ethic. What could an actual ethic be? And for that, I actually reached to Catholic teaching, proposing. Yeah, I was not ex- expecting Thomas Aquinas to make an appearance in your book. But <laughs> yep, Thomas Aquinas, Andrew Jorkin, they're all there. <laughs> <laughs> Common bedfellows. Yeah. <laughs> and and what did you take from Aquinas? Well, so I suggest instead of just relying on consent, which is you know a floor, um, we actually hold ourselves to a higher standard, and I suggest that willing the good of the other. Um, is actually a better ethic for sex in our sexual culture. And willing the good of the other is Aristotle by way of Thomas, St. Thomas Aquinas, and it's Aquinas's definition of love, actually. But not necessarily like romantic Valentine's Day love, but actually deep care. And willing the good of the other would involve, you know, caring 
for the other person in the encounter as much as you would care for yourself. It's deep empathy. It also suggests, of course, that you have to seek out and understand what the good is, which means, again, being honest about what sex is, what we should be looking for from each other, what is the higher goal that we're trying to attain. And I think that that is actually applicable to not just Catholics, but, you know, almost anyone from any culture. At its very foundation, it is the golden rule. And I think people do find that very easy to understand. And even if we don't reach it, we're still many steps further along than where we were before. Yeah, I I couldn't tell if I finished your book feeling hopeful or despairing because I, I, in some ways, I'm, I'm a bit more hopeful than I was a few years ago. Like when I was preparing to get married, I was kind of looking around and all of the think pieces about like polyamory were like in vogue. And I was like mm-hmm. envisioning a world like 40 years from now where I would be married and I'd be like, like the Catholics would, would be the monogamous ones or the religious people would be the monogamous <laughs> ones and everyone else had just kind of moved on. It doesn't seem like that's where the culture's moving necessarily anymore, right? Like you you write about the dissatisfaction with the way things are going. But I, I, I just don't know that we're, we give people the space or the structures or the time or the communities to really, really ask these like hard questions that you, you sort of end with about like, what does it mean to love? What does it mean? What is the good? What does it mean to seek the good of the other? And like, I, I don't know if I, I ended up sort of leaning towards like, I think the like tinderfication is just going to keep happening and people are just going to keep being miserable. I don't know if you're more hopeful than that. And I, I would love to be convinced otherwise. <laughs> I hate to say it, but I feel I feel discouraged by the culture too right now. That said, I do think that there are signs of hope. I mean, I think, first of all, that when you say creating space to have this conversation, the reason why I wrote Rethinking Sex um, and subtitled it a provocation was not you know, because I was trying to make people mad or upset or anything. It was to provoke a conversation, to open up a space to ask these hard questions um, and debate what we want our sexual culture to look like in public together. Because, you know, when I started writing this, it was almost a sense of, oh, wow, like things are bad out there, huh? Yep, things are bad. And then it's like, okay, where do we go from there? Mm -hmm. Um, And with this book, I I wanted to open up a conversation about where should we go? You know, even if people disagree with me, at least we're talking about how to move forward. And then in writing the book and in talking to people, as you say, I did find that this dissatisfaction was evident. And especially after COVID, when a lot of people had time to sit down alone in their houses, not on Tinder and think about what they really wanted from their relationships, their lives, each other. I think there there's maybe a growing openness to, to something different. You know, I wrote a piece in the Washington Post recently about um, radical monogamy. <laughs> uh, there's an article in Vice about how, um, you know, young people who had tried out polyamory and all these other relationship types were now rethinking monogamy and they were calling it radical monogamy. And like, this was the next hot relationship type. <laughs> I, like, le- I did let my wife know we were on the latest trend. Yeah, so yeah. That's good. You're radicals. Yeah. You're at the cutting edge. <laughs> Yeah. And I've, you know, I've noticed even young people who are like, I'm, I'm tired of the apps. I am going to try meeting people through my communities. Like maybe I'll even use like sort of goofy matchmaking services over email or something. So I do think that there is an openness to change. 
I know this book is not written specifically for for Catholics, but I do want to get your advice on 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 how young Catholics or, or young people of faith in general can start to have these conversations. I think, you know, as Zach said, the church has pretty like the the rules that we all know and learn about, at least in my experience, it, it, you rarely go beyond the rules to like a larger vision of what the ethics are or what what a good sexual life could look like. So what would your advice to be to, to young Catholics who want to start having those conversations? Or maybe those that don't want to have the conversation. <laughs> and why they should. Why they yeah. should want I, to. I'm like, yeah, I actually don't know I want to do that, but I, I probably should. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really good question. <laughs> I think, you know, in any conversation, you are always going to do well by trying to start with the basic truths the truth that we can, you know, all sort of comprehend and intuit. And this is, in fact, why the Catholic Church has a tradition of natural law, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are some things that we can kind of know to be true. And, you know, it's just simply as simple as asking people, what do you really want? And are the things that you're doing taking you there? Are you getting closer to, you know, what you ultimately desire and see as good? Um, by engaging in various behaviors. One of the fascinating things about writing this book and interviewing people for it is that a lot of us don't think about what our sexual lives look like, about what the culture is telling us. You know, I ask people, what would what would a good sexual world look like for you? Like, what do you actually want? And for many people, a lot of the response is like, oh, I don't, I've never really thought about it before. Hmm. It's hard to move towards what you yeah. desire if you don't know. If you don't what you know what it is, exactly. And I think that, you know, for Catholics, there is in some ways a lot of I mean, not in some ways, in in very clear ways, there is a lot of wisdom in church teaching and in tradition in the understanding that sex is meaningful and means something in the understanding of, you know, humans as having an inherent human dignity that means that we need to treat them a certain way and care for them and each other, you know, a certain way. And I think recognizing that, you know, what we're asked to do for each other in other sectors of life, you know, the care and empathy that we're expected to give, the love that we're expected to bestow isn't just about the rest of life. It also implicates our personal lives, our private lives, our sexual lives too. Hearing that, I always wonder, like, I feel like Catholics, like, always, like, finding a way to talk about this with our peers that are especially becoming Mm -hmm. less and less religious, um, we tend to, like, just sort of lead with the conclusions of our arguments. It's like, like, which is to say we lead with our rules, right? And finding a way to encourage, like, the sort of the ethics that you're talking about here, I think, makes a lot of sense because there are still ways that people can move toward the good as we understand it as Catholics without, you know, immediately being at the signing up for everything the church church teaches here. And I think that's one of the the, the beautiful things about the Catholic tradition is that, you know, we don't have to be in this, like, wholesale culture war. We can just sort of quietly witness and encourage and and, 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 and push people along, I think. Yeah. and. Again, I think that's what I was hoping to do with rethinking sex. Bring people along to even, you know, even just being a step or two, you know, further along, you know, an ethical path than we are now is a big step forward. That's incredibly meaningful. You know, you don't have to necessarily be of my faith or of my religion to hold yourself to a higher standard. And I think most people deep down inside 
want to be good to each other and have people be good to them. And so I ask where we can start. The book is Rethinking Sex uh, Provocation by Christine Emba. Um, Thanks so much. We do have one final question for you. Uh, and We ask this of all our guests. And if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, uh, sexually active or abstinent, <laughs> who would it be wow. and why? You know, okay. I think I would want to canonize a certain Father Marty who I met in college. He was one of the sort of parish directors at my university and put up with my many, many foolish questions and dumb questions and obvious questions and sad meanderings and wondering meanderings um, about the church, both when I was just interested in it, when I was converting to Catholicism, and even afterwards when I was no longer on campus, but would sometimes still just send him emails about my life and be like, what should I do? Father Marty, help me. <laughs> he was a warm and gentle and dignified guide to the church for me, and I think to a lot of my peers. And I think his impact on the world may, you know, he's not a famous person, perhaps. It may feel slight, but I know that he changed a lot of hearts and minds, including mine, for the good. All right. Well, I think everybody's better off if they have a Father Marty in their life, it sounds yeah. like. So I, I, that sounds good to me. St. Father Marty. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Christine, uh, congrats again on the book. It's, it's really a triumph. Um, I'm wondering, is there anything else you want to plug right now? No, honestly, I'm <laughs> currently on Just a, a full-time full <laughs> plugging the book right now. Um, but yeah, you can find the book wherever books are sold and read more of my columns at the Washington Post. Awesome. All, right. All right. Thanks so much, Christine. Yeah, thank you. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundra. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.